Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to see you. I was anticipating that I'd be looking out at a very shadowy thing and hoping I could read my notes and remember what I'd said, but it's lovely to be able to see uh, you all this morning. For those that don't know me, my name is Megan, and I have the great privilege of being part of the preaching team here at Alice Springs Baptist Church. And this morning, we're actually going back into a series. We started all the way back in January on the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of Jesus' seminal teachings and a really important teaching for us to look at and examine as we consider what it means to be followers of Jesus. This morning, I have both the privilege and the challenge of talking about Jesus' words on adultery and lust. Uh, And unpacking what that means for us as followers of Jesus today in 2023 in Alice Springs. I just want to give a warning at this point that by nature of this topic, we are going to be talking about some sensitive things. And there is going to be some sexual content to what we talk about this morning because we need to talk about it. So if you are here and you have kids and they're not adding kids' church and you feel like they're not ready to have the follow-up conversations that you're going to need to have or you're online and you've got your kids with you and you think, you know what, we're not ready to delve into that, now's the time to either head out or press mute or put earphones in and come back and listen later. It's something as a church family we really need to talk about and we need to be honest about. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But I recognise that for some people it may be a conversation for a later time. Do you mind looking forward a slide for me? I think this uh, isn't working. We've called this the lure of lust. Now, I am not a great fisherman, but I grew up in a family where my brothers and my dad love fishing and our best friends growing up are still very keen on fishing. And so most of our family holidays were spent with at least some portion of the holiday fishing. We did a lot of line fishing, mostly with bait, but every now and then dad would get out his tackle box and open up and there would be the lures. Now, as a little girl, this was the most exciting part of fishing for me because the lures were shiny and they looked exciting and Dad was all like, it's a look, no touch, because as shiny as and exciting as they look, they have a hook on them. And as a little girl, they are risky, right? If you haven't ever done lure fishing, the idea of this is that this lure looks a lot like a fish's prey. To a fish, this would look like a delicious meal. And the idea is that with the right techniques as a fisher person, you can either jig or trawl, I'm sure there's other techniques for more proficient fisher people out there, Um, and the idea is that the fish sees this lure and thinks, that looks like a wonderful living piece of prey for me to eat. And they come up and they get to have this delicious meal and instead they get trapped, hooked, and provide our dinner instead of getting their own. Lust can be like this. It promises something attractive something that might feel good, something that looks exciting. But if you step in, you very easily find yourself trapped. At the core of the message today, we are going to unpack and come back to a simple truth. And that is this. Lust is harmful and it is not part of God's best design for us. Thanks. Let's have a look at our passage and then we're going to unpack it in a bit more detail. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Nothing like a a simple, light-hearted message for today. 
It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, it might be easy to read words like this and think Jesus is being unreasonable. Adding further requirements that are out of reach for us to achieve salvation. We can read this and go, how can Jesus say his burden is easy, his yoke is light, and then make statements like this? If this is your gut reaction, I want to challenge you to come on a journey with us this morning as we unpack not the legalistic but the loving heart of God in this instruction. To see this, we first need to understand the context in which Jesus is saying these words, both in terms of the Sermon on the Mount but also his greater earthly ministry. If you haven't listened to the the first sort of four um, sermons in this series from January, I'd encourage you to uh, go back and have a listen because it makes it really clear throughout this entire sermon leading up to this point that it's all leading to one thing, which is the core of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is unpacked in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Just after Jesus um, has begun his earthly ministry, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The wording here is both present and future tense, as in the kingdom of heaven is accessible and it will be accessible in its fullness in the future. It is a way of living where God's rule and reign, the way he designed and intended us to live, is fulfilled. That's what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven. It's the very best version of ourselves as designed by our creator who knows us and loves us and knows what is best for us. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we are talking about a glimpse of what it looks like when we and others live under the rule and reign of God, the God who made us, who designed us, who wants the best for us. This is what Jesus is inviting us into and it's what his entire earthly ministry was pointing to and even his Sermon on the Mount, same thing, pointing to this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything Jesus said and did was about this. The Sermon on the Mount starts with what is commonly known now as the Beatitudes a series of statements about people that would have felt far from God, poor in spirit, mourners, meek, people that in their eyes, with their understanding of God at that time, would have felt distant from God, maybe even punished by God. And Jesus says, you are blessed. You are close to God. He goes on to give a call to those who are listening, not the teachers of the law or the people that had it all together, those who are listening, saying, you are salt and light. You can be a part of this kingdom and you can reflect this kingdom to others. And then he goes on to say something really important that frames up the next series of statements he makes. And he says in uh, verse 17, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I have come to accomplish their purpose. The intention of the law has always been to point us towards God and an invitation to us for us to participate in his kingdom and to reflect that kingdom to others, blessed to be a blessing. Jesus' earthly ministry was to fulfill what was written about and passed down from Moses, including the prophets and including law, including Torah law. And the purpose of the law was to create a kingdom of priests who participate in and invite people into the kingdom of God. And if you want to know more about that, head back and listen to Gavin's sermon in January. At this point in the sermon, having said all of this, Jesus launches into a series of comments about laws. Now, it's important to understand that 
there was Torah law, that is the law that was passed down to Moses that was written down, things like the Ten Commandments. And then those laws had been refined and redefined and then instilled by rabbis and teachers of the law who would then unpack things like, okay, so there's a commandment that says do not murder, but what does that mean? What constitutes murder? What doesn't constitute murder? What constitutes adultery? What doesn't constitute adultery? Those sorts of things. And so for Jesus, who was a rabbi, to unpack laws like this was expected and not at all surprising. And the fact that in this most famous sermon he launches into a series of comments about laws is entirely expected. But what is unexpected is what he says and how he discusses these laws. He goes on to talk about the commandment of murder, which is the sixth commandment, and then with our message today he talks about the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. So this is Torah law he's talking about. And he says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. This is the law and the prophets that he had come to fulfill. But instead of saying, so adultery is, uh, in this case, if you know, maybe the husband of the other woman doesn't give consent, which may be the case in some religions, or um, to redefine what adultery actually means, he says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It may surprise you to learn that unfaithfulness, adultery and cheating on someone, that is having sexual relations with someone outside of the person you are committed to, whether you are married or not, would not have been considered morally wrong among the Hellenistic religions of Jesus' day. The people surrounding the Jews in Jesus' day wouldn't have considered adultery or cheating on someone to be a moral issue. In fact, it's because of laws like the Seventh Commandment that Jews had a sexual ethic that defined them amongst the religions of the day, made them different. Nowadays, we live in a society where it's pretty widely accepted that adultery is harmful to individuals, to marriages, and to communities. There are very few people that you would talk to in Australia in 2023 who would say adultery is okay. Most people would say, you know what? Cheating on someone, that's, that's not on, that's not okay. Uh, morally and ethically, we accept generally in the developed world that this is harmful. But this instruction was given to the Jewish people through Torah law long before it was recognised for the harm that it caused. And so even in this law, we already see God's grace and call to priesthood to be different. And the law was given as a gift to the people of God for something they didn't even realise they needed yet. But the avoidance of adultery doesn't get to the heart of his grace. And this is what Jesus wants to point out to us in this teaching. There is something that fuels the inclination to adultery that takes us away from the heart of God, from the kingdom of heaven, and that is lust. It should not surprise us then to discover that there is now significant evidence to suggest that lust, and in particular addictions like pornography, which are fueled by lust, are damaging to individuals, to relationships, and to families. Lust is harmful, and it is not part of God's original best design for us. Now, some of you may hear this, and your response is, well, of course lust is harmful, and I don't want a part of it. But we all know that it's not that simple. We may not have that intention, but we need to recognise how lust plays out in the world, the lures that are all around us all the time, because it is everywhere. It's pervasive, it's seductive, it's dangerous, it's addictive. 
There are lures in the water all around us when it comes to lust, drawing us in like a fish, promising us something that they are not. And in Jesus, in his love and compassion, he warns us to protect us. Lust, by definition, is a strong sexual desire for someone. And at its core, lust is self-serving. It considers only the physical satisfaction that one might get from another person. But unlike adultery, we live in a society where lust is not generally considered to be morally wrong. It's all around us, all the time. You only have to look at mainstream media to see lust is played out as a normal and acceptable part of human relationships. Television shows regularly depict people having uncontrollable sexual desires for each other. In fact, there is a real art to creating sexual tension. Even reality TV plays this out in shows where physical appearance and attraction are highlighted and flaunted, and apparently this is acceptable. The idea that you might refer to another person as yummy or a hot piece of meat is not unheard of. We hear this language but it essentially reduces the other person as something or somebody to be consumed for our pleasure. At its core, lust is self-serving. So far, it seems that our society hasn't found a particular issue to this. I've been doing some home uh, workouts at home, given that um, I can't often get out with the kids at home, and sometimes the music that's in the background is just horrifying. Catchy beats, upbeat tunes, good for doing exercise too, but actually lyrics that are soul-destroying. You have to think about a song, and, and many of you will know this song from The Bad Touch, You and Me Baby Ain't Nothing But Mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Anyone know that song? Anyone dance to that song? I don't, I, we had it on in the background at discos at high school and stuff for us. This song reached number one in Germany, Ireland, Italy, Norway, Spain, and Sweden, and peaked at number five in Australia and number four in New Zealand. Now, whether it was because the lyrics were believed and accepted or just that it had a catchy beat, it's still a pretty disturbing message for us to be listening to. We ain't nothing but mammals. As Christians, we believe that humans are valuable and made in the image of God and so, so much more than mammals. But how easy with lyrics like this surrounding us is to miss or dismiss this and buy into a message that makes us nothing more than animals whose sexual pleasures need to be fulfilled at all costs. This is not the kingdom or heart of God for us. At its core, lust is self-serving and considers the other person only an object for my physical satisfaction. And in so doing, it objectifies them and it does something really toxic to my humanity. Seeing and treating other people as objects has significant potential to harm them as well as us. And even within marriage, where sex we know can be a healthy and wholesome part of God's best plan for our lives, lust can be destructive. If you are in a marriage and self-serving lust is the driver for your sexual connection and experience, that is that you consider what your husband or wife might be able to bring you in terms of physical pleasure to the exclusion of mutual submission, then there is a problem 
in that moment, your husband or your wife have become an object in your eyes. Lust is insidious, it is self-serving, it is objectifying and it is dehumanising and it has no part in the heart that God has for us, his good plan for us as his children. Some song lyrics can be subtle, but we know that there are entire industries that explicitly capitalise upon lust. We cannot truly consider this passage without talking about the pornography industry. Pornography is founded on <laughs> the exploitation of lust. By definition, it is the printed or visual material containing explicit description of sexual organs or activity with the intention of stimulating sexual excitement. The pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry funded on lust. With the advent of the internet and now smartphones and devices, it is easier than ever to access pornography. In fact, in some cases, it can be more a question of how to avoid it. And it's something we need to talk about. There are some absolutely terrifying statistics on this. This is taken from a website called It's Time We Talk that has a whole lot more information if you're wanting to explore this further. 48% of boys have seen pornography by the age of 13. 48% of girls have seen pornography by the age of 15. 35% of the scenes in popular pornography contain non-consensual sexual behaviour. This is what's teaching our children sexual education if we're not. Three of the top ten most viewed websites are porn sites. Now you may be here this morning and go, Whoa, like that's confronting. Or you may be here and go, you know what, if I'm honest, I add to those views sometimes. And it might be easy if you're in that boat to say, look, I understand that looking at someone that I know or someone in my world is an object, that, that's, that's distasteful, that's harmful, but what about when it's just an image? I mean, these actors and actresses have been paid for their work, hopefully. Um, so what's the problem there? But there are so many problems there. Even if you could take away the harm of the industry itself, there is a harm to you and the way you see people and yourself. Studies uh, indicate that the effects of routine viewing of pornography and other sexualized images reinforce harmful gender stereotypes contribute to young people forming unhealthy and sexist views of women and sex, contribute to condoning violence against women, which is no surprise when 35% of these scenes are non-consensual, consensual, and contribute to unsafe sexual practices. This doesn't even begin to address the trauma on actors, how it feeds the sex trafficking industry, exploitation of the vulnerable, the list goes on. This is a toxic industry. Is it any wonder then that when Jesus addresses the command on adultery, he pretty much says it's not just about adultery. There is something deeper and more insidious here that we need to name and deal with. Lust is harmful. It is not part of God's best design for us. It, it, even if it's just images, it distorts our perception and is potentially catastrophic for our relationships and our community. And just as with all of Jesus' teaching, here he is pointing us back to the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom where God's will abounds for our benefit, a way of living under God's rule and reign, the way he designed for us to live, the very best version of ourselves. And Jesus is clear that lust has no part in this. 
Now, when we look at this passage, one thing that is important to note is that Jesus very much addresses this to men. He says, if someone looks at a woman with lust, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I want to I spend a little bit of time talking about this because it's really important to understand that like, lust actually doesn't discriminate. At the time when Jesus was giving this message, women had very few rights and were often seen as objects. You only have to consider the example of the woman caught in adultery where this woman is dragged before a group of men who are ready to kill her and the man with whom she allegedly had this affair is nowhere to be seen and not being held accountable. And so Jesus' comments here should not be surprising. If meaningful change were to be seen in this context, when Jesus was speaking these words, it needed to be led by men. And so it makes sense then that Jesus highlights men in his Sermon on the Mount. And if you've ever wondered whether or not the Bible is for or against women, this is a great example that Jesus is absolutely for women and the most vulnerable in society. In these comments, we hear that Jesus absolutely upholds women as fellow image bearers so much more than mammals or objects. And he calls men to lead in this. Having said all of that, I believe that if Jesus were to preach this message today here in Alice Springs in 2023, he would say, if someone looks at a man or woman with lust, he has committed adultery with him or her in his heart. We live in a society where women's empowerment and rights have come a long way. But along with that, we've also seen the reality that just as men have lusted after and objectified women over the years, some women seem to feel that it's now their right to do the same. I became acutely aware of how normalised the idea of objectifying and women objectifying men had become when I went to a girls' night at the Alice Springs Cinema. We went, it was not because she was there, we went to watch a rom-com, um, pretty innocent, but they were advertising their next girls' night, which was going to be a screening of Magic Mike. Now, I have to confess, I've never seen Magic Mike, but the trailer and what was described at the Alice Springs Girls' night was enough for me to go, wow, this is the society we live in. They were promising that with this event they would have some topless men to make it more exciting. And whilst there are a few sighs in the audience, there were also a lot of women there who seemed really excited by this prospect. And somehow it wasn't widely seen to be absolutely unacceptable that this would be a hook for women to come to this event. And in the trailer, the lead, one of the lead characters makes this comment I want every woman that walks into this theatre to feel that a woman can have whatever she wants, whenever she wants. And there is that self-serving message again. So whether you are a man or a woman, lust is harmful. The lure is not directed just at men and it's something we all need to be really wary of. Objectifying people is not a right. It is something God calls us away from. It can almost be overwhelming. Lust is insidious. It's all around us. It's industrialised. It's in a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's indiscriminate. No one gets away. So what can we do about this? Apart from name it. Jesus goes on to say, So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is using rabbinic hyperbole here. 
not instructing mass amputation as if that would actually change anything. But he's making the point of how serious this is. He says it's better to lose a part of your body, even the part of your body that is the most functional part. I'm left-hand dominant and if I lost my left hand, I will be pretty much incapacitated when it comes to writing and doing anything that requires fine motor skills. And Jesus is saying, you know what, that is a price worth paying to deal with the toxic nature of lust in our world. This is a big deal. Lust is destructive. And it's not to say that attraction, affection and admiration are bad, but when it becomes self-serving and lustful, then we become snagged. And Jesus warns us, that one part, if one part of our body is trapped, then the rest of our body will be led into destruction. So what do we do? Well, I want to propose four strategies that we uh, can use, and I'm sure there's many more. The first is to take Jesus' words here, cut it out. And that sounds extreme. I'm not talking about cutting out your eyes, literally. But be really proactive about putting in boundaries here. It may mean that you need to stop having a smartphone for a while. That may sound extreme, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. It may be that you need to seek professional help, put in place some boundaries, some accountability, some safeguards. It may be as simple as not having your phone next to your bed or choosing not to watch a particular TV show that objectifies people and somehow normalises this behaviour in your eyes. I know having had a break from watching a lot of TV when my kids were young, coming back to some of the shows that I'd been watching before having kids was really confronting. And it actually made me go, you know what, I don't want to feed any of that to my body. Because we become so desensitised to this if we consume it in any form regularly, even if it's just in mainstream TV. It may be that you need to limit your time with particular people that you know are actually just adding to the lure in your life. And if you find yourself speaking of others as if they were consumable, then be aware of what you're doing. Call yourself on it and step away. Do whatever it takes because lust is harmful, even in small doses, and it will take you away from God's best design for your life and the lives of those around you. The second thing is to confess your sins. James, ever practical in his letter, says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. There is often shame associated with pornography addiction and lust, particularly in Christian circles. But we need to push past this for healing. Shame, when it is kept in secret, grows. But when it is shared, it shrinks. And as a church family, we need to be that safe place for each other to deal with the challenges that we have. We are in a world where this is insidious. And if you're someone who struggled with it, then speak to someone that you trust, a pastor, an elder, your small group, and realise that as a family we go through all of these challenges together because we are all broken people seeking to live God's best way for us. And it's not always easy. But in the kingdom of God and particularly in our church family, we need to share this stuff because when it's shared, it loses its power. And as James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. The third thing is to have the courage to lovingly confront. This comes again to the role of us as church family for each other. 
We live in a society where lust is pervasive and it's easy to get swept up in it without even realising it. Like I said, when I had a break from watching TV, it was particularly around violence for me at that point and I came back to watching some shows I'd watched before having kids, I was like, whoa, how desensitised did I become to be able to watch this stuff and go, yeah, you know. Because we become desensitised to what we're exposed to all the time. And so James, again, a little bit later, says, my dear brothers, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. If you see someone in your world, a Christian brother or sister, who is struggling or who is speaking about others in an objectifying way, then with love and with grace, recognise that we don't want to add to the shame here, but we do want to help people on a journey of healing, call it out. We need to have the courage to say to each other, you know what, when you said that, I actually felt really uncomfortable because I felt like that objectified this person and I want to know if I can help you with that. We might be able to be a part of someone else's road to recovery if we have the courage. And the last thing is to rehumanise. We spent a lot of time talking about what not to do just now, (laughs) what to avoid, but the Kingdom of God isn't a gospel of sin management. It's an invitation to best living. And we've spoken about the dehumanising power of lust. So some of that power can be taken away if we redirect and rehumanise. If you find yourself looking at someone you know and lust enters your thoughts, I would encourage you to stop and think about something that you admire about them beyond their physical appearance. Rehumanise them. If you're caught on an image or an individual, stop and consider how that person is made in the image of God. When we rehumanize and the power of lust of self-serving satisfaction loses some of its grip. Remember that at its core, lust is self-seeking and only considers the physical satisfaction one might get from another person. So take your eyes off yourself and your wants for a moment and consider the other person as a human being made in God's image, worthy of unconditional love and respect. And this can be particularly important if lust has entered into your marriage. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy and praise. If we're going to combat lust in our lives, then we would do well to do exactly this. Jesus gets to the heart of adultery and calls lust out for what it is, something our loving God never intended us to become captive to. So together, church family, let's have the courage to address lust in our lives and focus on those things that are true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, we live in a society where, um, although we've come a long way in recognising adultery and cheating for the harm that it causes, we are still a long way from recognising lust for the harm that it causes. We pray that you would ha- give us the courage to be different to embrace the calling you have for us to be your people, separate, living in your kingdom already but not yet the way that you've designed us to live as best as we can. Help us in that to be an example to others that lust does not have to have a hold on our lives. Help us to show what it looks like to truly respect and admire and love the people around us beyond just the satisfaction and self-serving nature that lust Um, reduces these relationships to. 
Help us to be an example of your love. Give us courage, we pray, God, if this is something we're struggling with, to seek the help that we need, to put in place the boundaries we need to put in place and to share with each other. That we don't have to struggle with this alone. We pray as a church family, God, that we would support each other in our um, quest and our journey to live the way you've called us to live. Help us, God, not to further add to the shame, but instead add to the healing um, and restoration and drawing people into your best plan for them and for us. Recognising, God, that all people are made in your image, worthy of love and respect, and help us, Lord, to find freedom and joy in that every day. Amen.